This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew. Hope you know the name of the show because I said it real fast. And if you don't know it, you're screwed. Um, I mean, they would have had to get through several layers of of security before <laughs> without knowing the name at this point. So that's yeah, true. It's okay. Um, we are going to talk about the book Ash by Melinda Lowe in a second. I'm going to tell Andrew about it. I never read it before. Um, you all are going to be stuck in this episode for the next 45 minutes to an hour, much like (laughs) that big boat. (laughs) We don't always talk about current events, which is like sometimes put a timestamp on this episode. It's big boat time. Sometimes I'm listening to other podcasts that came out in September and they talk about like things that happened in September. And I'm like, do we, we don't do that. So no, this, this week. There's a big boat. It's stuck in the Suez Canal. It's such a big boat. It's the biggest boat. It's too big. It's such a big boat. And, and it's I don't too really stuck. Have any, I don't have anything else to say about it. I'm just like in awe of the size of this lad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, holding up 10% of the world's shipping economy uh, at a time when more people want things delivered than ever before. Mm-hmm. See I mean, my job my job is super fun right now because my job is to tell to look at a pile of 10 computers and tell people this is the one computer you should buy. Yeah. And right now the computer you should buy is the computer you can buy because it's hard to buy computers. Yeah, so cuz they're just, all on the boat. And now I'm I'm looking at this boat like there's some funny memes coming out of this thing. It's a real it's just comically huge this boat. Uh-huh. But are there laptops on it? <laughs> Like, is this going to make my life worse if they can't unstick this boat? Yeah, yeah. What if What if we were allowed to go to the boat and, like, we could bid on the stuff on the boat without knowing what was inside, like like uh, pickers do? Oh, uh, yeah, I guess you do it, like, eventually you do it like a, an estate sale. And, yeah. Like, everything, everything must go. You get an auction, you're in. You auction off the cans. And it's like when you sell a piano on Craigslist where you don't really sell it. You just tell someone a piano needs to get out of my house. You can pay to take it away. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's how it would go. (laughs) So that's our suggestion for how to unstick the big boat. And now, like a boat drifting into a riverbank, we are going to (laughs) crash into our discussion of of this book. (laughs) Oh, that's better than I thought it would be. Um, so every episode, one of us reads a book, tells the other person about it. I read this week's book. Like I said, it's Ash by Melinda Lowe. Um, it is a book from 2011. Oh, 2009. 2009. Yeah. 2009, excuse me. Um, 2009. 2009 is what I was going to say. Um, and it was Lowe's first published novel. Um, in multiple interviews and, and other sources, she... Is quick to say this was not her first novel. She did write three of them as a teenager, <laughs> but this was the first one she ever revised and worked on, and and so on and so forth. I, I mean, do they count though if they're not published? Well, she wrote them, I guess. I mean, we recorded podcasts before we did Overdue, but I wouldn't say that I no, wouldn't count we those definitely the total didn't. number no. of podcasts that I, <laughs> that I've been a part of. Uh, what do we know about uh, Melinda Lowe, Andrew? Uh, she was born in China and moved to the U.S. at the age of three. Um, she began writing for a culture blog called After Ellen in 2003. Um, and that was that was mainly what she was known for before this came out. This was her debut, her first public novel, <laughs> her mm, debut mm-hmm. novel in 2009. Uh, since then, she's published several other novels and short stories. 
um, including the kind of sort of prequel Huntress, which yep. is it's set in the same world, but I guess in the distant past and has none of the same characters in it. Yeah. Um, and then her most recent book, uh, Last Night at the Telegraph Club, was published in January of this year. Sure. Um, and yeah, so the, the main thing about this book, like if you're going to if you're going to sum it up in one pithy line or if you're going to. If you're going to pick up what it's about from all the contemporaneous reviews, it's like lesbian Cinderella. Yeah. Uh, Lowe identifies as a lesbian herself. Um, and but the, but the interesting thing, I read this in a review that she did with the ALA at the at the time. Um, she says the first draft was actually straight. <laughs> uh, yeah. She says, Ash fell in love with the prince. I gave that draft to a friend to read, and she told me that she felt that Ash didn't have much chemistry with the prince. She did, however, seem to really like this other woman in the book. I was really startled by this at first. I reread that draft and realized that, yes, I had somehow written in some kind of lesbian subtext. I did initially try to make the prince more charming because I didn't think writing a lesbian Cinderella was a good idea. I thought it would make the book unsellable. And that's just, it's it's really interesting reading that interview and reading uh, reviews of the of the books from the time because 2009 doesn't feel like that long ago but in terms of uh, like queer representation in media yeah. and like queer acceptance in American society it was a long time ago <laughs> yeah she actually she founded um, a website slash book tour which is an interesting slash called uh, diversity in YA in 2011 I think it has since gone on permanent hiatus um, but they did a lot of work studying diversity in YA books at the time and publishing you know, interviews with authors and lists of books and data and stuff. She seems just very attuned to what is and isn't out there. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, multiple interviews with her, as well as there's an interview at the end of my edition of the book. It's like the 10-year anniversary edition where it's an interview with her editor. And they do get into that like where when this book came out um queer representation was not what it is today and you know she talks a little bit about like would it have gotten the same response that it did if it were published now who knows you could that's not really a question you can accurately answer it just it is the book that it was at that time um i mean i think if nothing else she might have set out to to write a queer cinderella story retelling like instead of sort of stumbling into it like yeah there and this is this is another reason i guess why representation is important is like you would not start from a point of view of assuming that a a queer cinderella retelling would be unsellable like that's just not that particular barrier there there are plenty of other barriers up don't get me wrong but that particular barrier would be gone now, which is just like, it doesn't say anything about the way that people would have responded to this had it come out later than it did. But for future sort of books that are playing in the, in this field, that's, that's an important thing to have happened. Yeah. She's spoken a lot about how she came to write this book in particular. So she was going to school. She went to like Wellesley and Harvard and Stanford. She was an anthropology student. Um, And so when she started writing this novel, she was, approaching her world building from like an anthropological uh like let me study a bunch of cultural practices and and i'll talk about that a little bit in just a second but she um in coming to base it on cinderella she said that this was her favorite fairy tale as a kid she read a lot of books by robin mckinley who has written a lot of books for young readers that have some sort of feminist twist on classic fairy tales like Beauty and the Beast and Rapunzel and stuff, but she didn't have a Cinderella. And so Lo was like, well, that's a book I would have liked to read by mm-hmm. one of my favorite authors. I guess mm-hmm. I'll just go write that book. Um, and then she also, in setting out to write the like a lesbian retelling of it, she did kind of specifically say she didn't want it to be a coming out story. Sure. Um, she said... 
you know, at the time, coming out stories were typically framed as journeys of struggle as a young person faced negative reaction to their sexual orientation. There are struggles in fairy tales, of course, but they're not about sexual orientation, and the reward at the end is often an enviable love match. Um, in order for Ash to get her fairy tale ending, her female love interest had to be admired by everyone, just like Prince Charming. That meant I had to create a world in which same-sex relationships were normal so that no one would blink when Ash fell in love with a woman. And I do, I'll circle back to that at the end of our discussion because it's clear by the reception of the book. Um, it is, I'm, I do little by adding my voice to the, to the heaping piles of praise to say, <laughs> yes, she succeeded. I think she did a really good job. Cool. Um, that's so I was thinking about, so I don't, I've, I off sometimes I wonder like if I were to write a book, what would it be? Mm. And I just haven't figured that out yet. Okay. But, an interesting vein that just just popped into my head because of what you said was, what if I looked at old public domain stories <laughs> and just picked one that didn't seem like it had been retold enough times yet, and I just I just chose to retell it, yeah, in some like cool way, like from a like from a tables perspective or something, yeah, or from mm-hmm. the point of view of a dog. Yeah, not to not to equate tables or dogs with uh, with queer representation. That's totally not what this goof is about. This goof is just about like, what if I what if I retold Journey to the Center of the Earth, but I made it about like Earth mice? Yeah, you could. Yeah, you could do yeah. it. Mm-hmm. What's stopping you? Not intellectual property rights. That's for sure. <laughs> Um, I don't know if you came across this in any of the interviews you read, Andrew, uh, from the same editor interview. She does talk about um, representation in this book of Asian characters or mm-hmm. not. Um, there's a blog on her website about it called Asianness or the Lack Thereof in Ash. If you have, if anybody listening to this has read or read about the book Huntress, um, it is much more explicit that there is a lot of. Uh, inspiration from Chinese culture in that book. Um, And when she came to writing this one, uh, she says, much of the world building for Ash's world was based on Chinese anthropology, specifically about funerals. Um, That's what I've been studying in grad school, she said. I originally envisioned the world of Ash as partially Chinese-inspired, and I envisioned Ash the character as looking Asian to some degree. But when I chose to write a lesbian Cinderella, uh, I shied away from making the Asian inspiration explicit. At the time, I truly believed that layer would be too much for straight white readers. Um, I figured that the gay thing was more than enough to deal with. And she has, in multiple interviews, kind of expressed some regret in not honoring that initial creative impulse mm-hmm. um and she says in that blog post um just that she, she does have a, a healthy sense of like the author is not part of your reading experience if you do not want the author to be so like let the reader cast the work in a way mm-hmm. um it's just it's an interesting perspective as as we think about representation um she oh, what does she say she says um, bloggers list Ash as a book that includes people of color. That's very kind of them, but honestly, I don't think it deserves to be in that category that takes away from books that truly are about race and ethnic diversity or that engage overtly with those identities. Um, and then she goes on to like kind of walk all that back and be like, that's my opinion. You're the reader. <laughs> do what you need to do to enjoy my book. I think it's mm-hmm. a good book. Um, she, I don't know. It's, she just it has, it was fascinating reading her perspective on this book and the reception to it sure especially as someone who like was in graduate school for not like the publishing industry and then clearly learned a lot about it very quickly as she got successful Mm -hmm. um what do you know about cinderella andrew as we get into this book specifically cinderella child of woe (laughs) (laughs) she is got an evil stepmother who makes her clean all everything uh-huh. She got bad stepsisters who, depending on the adaptation, are like I I feel like one of the decision like the big decision points you can make if you're explicitly adapting Cinderella is do the stepsisters get humanized at all or are they also horrible monsters like yep. that stepmother invariably is uh-huh. um she I don't know like accidentally. A prince like sees her and he gets all horny and he's looking for her and there's a shoe and 
the shoe fits, and so he must acquit. And they get married at the end. Yes, Johnny Cochran's version. Of- <laughs> so that's, so that's, that's my adaptation of Cinderella. Other Perfect. famous adaptations include the Disney animated one from the 50s. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which is maybe the, the widest known one. And then I think, I mean, the, the number two Cinderella adaptation I think about, and I don't know if this is true of you, is the uh, 1997 one with, with Whitney Houston, Brandy, uh, Jason Alexander, <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg, and Bernadette Peters in it, among others. Yes. And, and that yeah. in and of itself is an adaptation of what is probably the actual number two, which is the Rodgers and Hammerstein one. Because they're using the music from that for oh, that I was, movie. Was I in that? We had in high school <laughs> the movie with no, Whitney no, 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 Houston. No. In, in high in high school, we had a um, a musical director who was just running through the Rodgers and Hammerstein catalog. Like mm-hmm. there was no deviation from it. And so I know we did the Sound of Music. I don't remember. I think we did Cinderella, but I don't remember for sure. Yeah boy yeah you know that's where a lot of that that's where a lot of those songs come from i was definitely a nazi in the sound of music though in high school well a lot of people were yeah it's a shame really Mm -hmm. i don't we didn't do sound of music i was uh well some little white boy didn't have to be a nazi i guess in your high (laughs) school i did have to dance around in hell in damn yankees though Mm. is it hell who can say anyway Mm. um yeah, so in this retelling of Cinderella, the there's like a couple main things that Lo is focusing on. The one that she speaks about outside the book and is certainly present in the text of the story a lot is just grief. Um, there are about four or five chapters, I think, before we get to what would traditionally be the beginning of the Cinderella tale. Like... It opens with um, our Cinderella, Ashling, um, who her mother dies, um, and then her father dies. And then after a, a, like a decent amount of exposition about the way that magic functions in this world and fairies, it's, a, it's very Irish, like medieval Britain vibes. Um, and after all of that is set up, then we get to like, and now she lives with her evil family. Makes her. <laughs> um, and it's just an interesting setup. I think Lo said that she, um, you know, her parents did not pass away, but the grief of hers that's in the book, I think her grandmother passed away while she was working on the novel. Mm-hmm. And that bears out in some like funeral rites that they give Ashling's mom and there's like this tension. I don't know how many books you've read that have this, Andrew. I'm reminded of like Hamnet and other recent England, old Englandy books that I've read for the show that have like a oh, this person had like the pagan beliefs, and we've got some people who have the like not the biker gang, like older, you know, um, and we've got some folks who have like the equivalent of modern Christian church beliefs or like more modern christian church beliefs and their intention um so like when they're burying her mom they do the the capital o old funeral rites even though people don't do those all the time anymore like that kind uh, of thing. yeah i guess game of thrones right oh is that a game of Th- yeah that is a game of thrones There's- like you do you go by the big ugly t- tree <laughs> or do you go by the lord of light yeah that sort of thing yeah mm-hmm. um and remember all that of that. Show. <laughs> remember that show? However, we end overdue. I really hope we don't mess it up so bad that it makes people retroactively disregard the all the years of work that we've put in so the, far. To memory hole a thing of that magnitude. Is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Collectively, we as a, we should be able to move that big boat if we moved Game of Thrones out of our collective consciousness That's true. so quickly. That's true. Ooh, man. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, Someone cancel the big boat. <laughs> cancel culture. Get that big boat. Get that big boat. Um, so in the f- chapters between Ashling's mother dying and when her dad dies, a few things happen. We get some exposition on fairies in this world. In a country so fond of its fairy stories where the people clung to the memory of magic with a deep and hungry nostalgia, it was no surprise that philosophers and their church forced 
faced a difficult task when they landed in Seatown four generations ago. There's this, like, as I said, this tension between the old ways and the new ways, and the old ways get wrapped up in Ashling's grief for her mom, this feeling of, like, well, if magic is real and fairies do exist, which I think my mom believed, then maybe they can help me see her again or bring mm-hmm. her back or take mm-hmm. me to her. Which, of course, if it is true, that's going to be dangerous because the fairies in this world like to just capture people out in the woods with like magic food and stuff, and then you never see them again. So I, I get like from my research, I understand that there's like no real like fairy godmother situation in this. Like you, you do get fairies, but they seem more. Uh, nefarious, I guess, or like trickstery, maybe. They I'm are not sure where. Yeah, they are inherently in like a low level conflict with humanity. Where I think Same. later, <laughs> later in the novel, um, the main fairy, the fairy godfather, or as I put him in my notes, the fairy creep father, um, mm, Sheen. Got him. <laughs> uh, yeah, got him. Sheen, um, spelled. S-I-D-H-E-A-N. It's very, it's like based on like an Irish, like nymph kind of folklore thing. Yeah, I think like Siobhan is the only other name that's spelled like that, that I'm, Mm, that I know to, to see it. But yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, even, even Ashling is, is spelled uh, A-I-S-L-I-N-G, which I don't know that you said the first time. No, I didn't. Um, But the thing with the fairies is we f- we find out later that maybe they're losing relevance to this world and so like they're kind of lashing out by like tricking humans to go into the magic woods and then like keep them there forever but that's also probably a thing that fairies have been doing anyway and that's what all the fairy tales are about fairy tales do exist in the world of this book where people does, tell them does this specific fairy tale cinderella exist or just no. like the, the genre exists the genre um okay. and and actually like not even the the grim like not even of the genre of cinderella or other grim tales it's more about like here's a story about someone who went into the woods and encountered some magical creature and then like either went on living a weird magical life or they like went back to their normal life changed it's not it's not quite the same as like the tropes that you find from grim tales it's a little different um, Okay, but so all of this fairy tale background stuff and Sheen shows up as the fairy creep father a little bit later um, is tied very explicitly to her relationship to her mom, which, of course, is, you know, the last thing that she and her dad share. But then her dad, like, leaves on a business trip for a few months after his wife dies, like you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he right. comes back with a book for his daughter and a new wife and two stepdaughters. <laughs> some, bu- some business trip. <laughs> I brought you some presents. Must have been to like magical Vegas or something. Uh huh. It there's not really any explanation for why that arrangement happened, and that's very. It is a very economic book. Um, for riffing on a fairy tale, it's it does seem to keep the concision. Is it, that's not quite the conjugation like, I'm looking for. Conciseness. conciseness yeah. Thank you. Um, of Conci- fairy tale. Concisiosity. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so we meet Lady Isabel and her daughters, Anna and Clara, who are both basically the same age as Ashling, like 12 and 10. And they are from uh, a town not far outside the royal city. And they're very mm-hmm. like, hoo-hoo, civilized. And they look down on this kind of rural village and their old beliefs and things. And then, of course, about two weeks later, her dad dies um, from being now, sick. Okay, are the how mysterious are the circumstances? Like, how how much... On a scale from one to ten, are we supposed to think that the stepmother did it? Um, on a scale of zero, the stepmother did not do it. Well, that's what you say. Well, what I say that's is... not what I heard on Newsmax. <laughs> what I the say... my the my pillow guy did a really good video on YouTube about how the stepmother did it. Is all I'm saying. Okay, what I say <laughs> is that I think maybe. And I, I did reread some passages to see if this was more explicit or if it was just me inferring it. I think I was inferring it, um, whether or not it was there, is that during the time when the step family first shows up, Ashling is like kind of rebelling by spending each night at her mother's grave and like 
kind of wishing for her to come back to life, or maybe she'll see a fairy who can help her or something. Just and having the, the, your typical teenage goth phase, I <laughs> yes. guess. And, Just like sleeping in the cemetery. And one of the last time, the last time that she does this in that town, I think she does maybe very briefly meet Sheen the fairy, even though she doesn't know that that's what's going on. And then when she comes back, her dad is sick. So I was sort of expecting a like, oh, me being gone connected with the fairy world got my dad ill vibe. That didn't happen. Mm -hmm. But maybe it did. I don't know. It did. Maybe it did. I I guess like, so you mentioned up top that the reviews for this were mostly good, which they were. If there was one common thread that I saw brought up in reviews that um, were either like positive but wanted to talk about the thing they like the least or were like mixed to negative was sure. like the characterization is sort of like you mentioned the economy of, of language but the impression that I got was that some of the characters and we haven't talked about all of them yet but some nope, of the characters no. are sketched in better than others and some things sort of seem like rote or tropey in a, in a way that didn't always hit people right like does that because you, you you say that you know you, she he comes back with a stepmother and then he dies like two weeks later and it's all very just like yeah this happened and I guess is it less satisfying because it all just happens because that's how it needs to happen like I don't know do you, do you wish there were more there or do you agree with those reviews or what was the deal I could I could see someone okay. You come into a book that is going to be this retelling of a story that you know. I could see you wanting wanting it to flesh out parts of it that it doesn't because you're like, oh, that's what I might be interested in. Um, the father is a character in this story, which rarely actually happens in tellings of Cinderella. So yeah, usually you just jump right to the stepmother situation. Yeah. So if like we're going to put him in the book, let's meet him a bit more. And really, we don't. And... I don't know. I found the rest of the book enjoyable enough that I was like, yeah, he's dead. That's fine. And she also (laughs) like she doesn't visit his grave. So they end up burying him in the new town that they move to in West Riding. I think it's called. And she doesn't visit his grave until like years afterwards. And the, the scene where it happens, even she's like, man, why don't I come here? It's probably because I couldn't bring myself to, but also she spent all of these years trying to like reconnect with her mom who's dead, but maybe fairy magic will keep her like that feels way more developed. And for me, it didn't happen at the expense of like the stepsisters being kind of one note and the father not really being part of the story. And like you're going to put an evil stepmom in this book like she doesn't need to be more complicated than that like i don't <laughs> to me the the stuff that has surprising depth is the relationship to the fairy godfather and the relationship to the huntress who becomes the romantic interest like those are and they and those are the two most novel things about the retelling i think i came into it prepped for the trope parts to feel tropey and mm-hmm. the stuff that is really a creation of Lowe's to feel different. Um, I could see someone like wishing that she was playing more directly with the material that's in Cinderella, I guess. Sure. Um, because it's clear that... She, and maybe that's because she wrote all those drafts that had like a, like a heterosexual Prince Charming relationship and it was busted and she was like, I don't care about this. I'm going to go do my other thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know. There just, there are plenty of stories that adapt some of the Cinderella tropes, like the evil stepmother, like a, a sort of rags to, if not rags to riches, then at least like forlorn and bereft to loved and accepted. Yeah, sure. It's emotional rags to riches. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> like they, they adapt those tropes without being like, oh, I'm doing a Cinderella thing. Yeah, and this is like, I'm doing a Cinderella thing. Like, yeah. there are multiple, there are three balls or ball-like equivalents that we 
see directly from Yeah, my understanding is this is this is the main this is the only place where the prince still exists in this book is he's like a vaguely benevolent yeah noble in the background who hosts parties yes he's got a lot of he the prince prince aiden i think his name is oh god of course um prince i know his <laughs> he he's fine he's not particularly charming he's gonna get married his mom wishes that he was marrying someone from another kingdom to like you know for dowry reasons i guess yeah of course but he wants to marry someone in the town there's none of that pressure if you might recall from the brandy whitney houston version of cinderella there's none of Mm -hmm. that pressure on the prince to get married or throw big parties that he doesn't want to like he's game he Mm -hmm. he knows what it is to be a prince um but ashling's not really wrapped up in that and she doesn't really seem particularly interested in it um she has becomes cinder she becomes cinderella proper like in the way that bruce wayne becomes the batman in like origin story <laughs> when uh after I mean, spending when her when literally when her parents die well y- yes <laughs> yeah you're right I mean, if, you're gonna, if you're gonna make batman a part of it <laughs> um particularly and this doesn't happen in the batman um her stepmother gets some mail that's like, oh, dang, that dude that you married who's dead now was in a lot of debt, and all that debt is yours now, uh, so you're screwed. And so the stepmother gets really mad about it, sells their old house in the old town, and basically says to Ashling, like, hey, so I can't afford to hire proper help anymore, so you're going to be a servant now. You're going to go in the kitchen and help the cook. That's sure. right. Mm-hmm. Um, which I don't really remember from other tellings of Cinderella how they navigate putting her into that indentured servitude. But in this, it's like really clear. She is told like to pay off your father's debts. You will work for me now. Go in the kitchen and help the cook. And then the, the next page the cook has her like help set the table for three people, the two stepsisters and the stepmother. And it is clear that she is not part of the family anymore. She is a servant. She's the help. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think like the stepfather thing, like I think usually by the time most Cinderella adaptations start, you know, her, her parents being dead is a given and her being in indentured servitude is also a given. That's a good point. That's a good. Point. And it's because she's the hot one. Usually <laughs> it's a, it's a, she's all that situation. And they're all, yeah. well, I mean, it's kind of a, she's all that. Like it's not, I guess if you put her in glasses and had her take the glasses there off and the prince was like, goes. yeah, there she goes again. I think hmm, I'm trying to think what Cinderella adaptation we could write. And I think sort of a combo Cinderella with like, she's all that undertones. Yeah, would be, I'm into it. That's that's a that's worth exploring. OK. All right. Okay. You take some notes as we keep talking about this book. Let me know if mm-hmm. anything strikes you. Okay. Um, this book does do a time jump um, after some uh, initial ventures out into the woods where Ashling is like, what if I just left? And I don't remember any Cinderella story where the Cinderella just goes, what if I just left? Yeah, like, who? these people aren't anybody to me. I'm an adult. I, I could just go. <laughs> I could leave. Um, and she does wander into the magical woods. She meets Sheen. And he's like, hey, we have a connection that I'm not going to spell out right now. And it's not time for that yet. Go back to your home. And she's like, but maybe you could help me connect with my mom. And he's like, nah, she's dead. Leave it alone. Go back to your home. Hmm. And getting negged by this fairy. <laughs> yes, a little bit. Uh, and she comes back. She's been gone all night. Her stepmother is like, what the heck is that? There is some, you know, she gets locked in a cellar. It's pretty traumatic. Like some of that stuff to when you hear about it in the grim fairy tales and you're like, wow, that's messed up. And then when you read it, in a more modern author's writing and it's like wow that's really messed up <laughs> so for just be careful anybody for whom that might not be a fun read mm-hmm. um so then we do a time jump the cook beatrice is gone so now cinderella is the only person doing all the servitude stuff and she has been occasionally spending time out in the woods with the guy sheen learning about fairies 
she likes the connection that she gets with her mom through talking to him, but he does seem creepy and want something from her that he's being a little nebulous about. And then we meet the Huntress, uh, who is this woman, uh, I think it's Kaisa. Mm-hmm. And the King's Huntress, as I said in that quote from Lowe earlier, or as Lowe said in that quote from Lowe earlier, um, is like a fabrication where Lowe needed something that was equally respected as the prince of the kingdom uh-huh. um that could be a woman um that ash would have some sort of relationship with and and it, and it would not be like i don't know that it would be accepted like it helps that this that this woman is in charge of leading the like ritual traditional stag hunt um, every year for the king and so she has this like place of reverence in society yeah she she needs to be above uh ashling's station and affiliated with the royals but can't just straight up be princess charming. yeah yeah because she didn't want to just do a princess charming thing which actually is really interesting just because like there are times when kaisa seems like i don't know about this all these royals and this hunting, like it's kind of like it's what I'm meant to do and I'm going to do it. But also I'm not them. I'm not a royal. So I'm just part of this tradition. So they just kind of start to have this like sweet relationship where they meet each other a couple times in the woods and they keep kind of contriving ways to spend time with each other. Like, Kaisa just comes to the house one day when the step family's away and it's like, hey, can I have some water for me and my horse? <laughs> and when and when Ash is like, why did you come? She's like, I don't really know. Just, this is nice. Show up and hang out. Just want to hang. Yeah. You know, what, a person can't come around and ask for some water for yeah. them and their horse? Um, and they, uh, they do, like she teaches... Ashling how to ride uh like a hunting horse which is really fun and all of this is happening when the two stepsisters particularly Anna the older one is like being ushered into society like she's going to maybe maybe she'll get chosen by the prince but at the very least she'll get wed to some noble with money or something mm-hmm. and so they go away to the city for like or somewhere else for, you know, a few days or a week at a time or something. I was trying to figure out what their relationship, if it was like New York City, because they're like a few miles away. <laughs> and so it sort of felt like South Jersey, where it's like, you could Ew. go there in a day and come back. But why would you? But you wouldn't. You're probably going <laughs> up there for like a long weekend if and like staying over and like treating yourself a little You're going bit. down the shore. You're not going to... South Jersey proper, I guess. Yeah, it d- it didn't okay. feel like a Newark or Hoboken relationship, is what I'm saying. Really, this is a strange, <laughs> strange comparison really. that you've chosen. But I guess I'm into. <laughs> Trenton makes the world takes. That's true. That's true. Um, and so she is like, you know, finding herself interested in the Huntress. They offer like things that the other person can't give them so ashling offers kaisa just kind of like a break from any of the royal stuff from any of the like responsibilities that are on her um kaisa does not treat ashling like a servant at all does not really comment on that part of her life except to say it doesn't matter and ashling's entire existence is like defined by what she owes people or feels that she owes people so like she very literally is in this servitude because her stepmother's like yo your dad had some debts and you're gonna pay him off and if you Mm -hmm. ever try to run away all you're gonna do is prove to everyone in the world that your dad sucked and his daughter sucked worse um (laughs) just like a real guilt trip to keep her around um and she also feels like this guilt and indebtedness to her mom's memory and that gets wrapped up in the stuff with the fairy guy sheen who is like hey you're gonna owe me someday you and she is like oh god and 
ultimately he becomes the one who starts giving her like the magic trinkets and clothes that she needs for the like various iterations of balls in this book and it becomes clear that he wants he is like kind of cursed to be in love with her for reasons and he wants her to be his okay and she has to agree to that to to get these magic clothes and the other things that she wants from him hmm. um which of course proves a problem when she does realize that she has feelings like real feelings for the huntress and wants maybe that to be part of her life. I guess that that relationship where I'm giving you something and therefore I expect something does make more sense in today in today's modern society than <laughs> the thought of a benevolent like socialist fairy godmother who just wants to lift you from poverty. Well, and I was thinking about I was thinking too about I was trying to remember how other Cinderella's handle this or not. The fact that Ash enters into this fairy relationship with Sheen as her magical benefactor slash protector slash creepoid, um, she does have an understanding for a reverence of an interest in magic and the fairy world and stuff that I don't think I don't think at the beginning of Cinderella, like traditional version of Cinderella, she's like up on how fairy godmothers work and is like just hoping for her fairy well, godmother like sure to show I, up. I sure hope I find some magic. Yeah. Um, and so this book is really steeped in this character, like wanting to be part of that world and then to be with her huntress has to make a decision about like how she may or may not actually be part of that world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know there's a couple different balls we go to one is a cool hunt where she gets to dress up as a hunter and ride with the huntress and they kill a big stag and it's pretty gruesome there's a part where Andrew if you were mm, would you eat <laughs> if you were the prince of a kingdom okay and you had a huntress. How big? That, how big a kingdom? Like a good kingdom, or like one of the like one of, like a tiny little European thing? I mean, it's a tiny little European kingdom. Mm, okay, so like we're talking about like the Princess Diaries or yeah, uh, Christmas Prince size yes. kingdom. Okay, good. <laughs> sort of what it seems like yeah. Um, your court has a royal huntress who goes out and hunts a big stag for you before mm-hmm. like Yule time. Yeah, and you get to ride around, and then she kills it. Hmm. First, she's going to take the liver out of the stag and feed it to the dog who is at the front of the pack, right? Makes sense, yes. Then she's going to take the rest of the liver and offer it to you. Mm-hmm. You need to eat it. Mm-hmm. And then she's going to wipe blood on your face. How well, How do you feel about the this real, mo- tradition? Face-off sort of situation. <laughs> um, that I feel bad about because I don't, I don't like... I'm worried about consuming raw meat in whatever time this is. Oh yeah. That's a that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, no, like I we ate chicken liver a fair amount as kids because it's a very cheap cut of meat. Mm, it is, it is. <laughs> so I don't I don't have any, I don't have any intrinsic bias against liver as a as a food. Like I think if I ate it now probably I would think it was like pretty oily. I haven't had liver in a long time, but at one time, I enjoyed it. But so, you, like that—that that part I don't mind. I—I I do mind the raw meat part of it. Yeah, I guess I do mind. Like she, like it doesn't have like dog bite marks in it, right? Like she did cut it with a knife. She did first. cut it with okay, a knife. Good. All yes. right, so that's <laughs> fine. <then. laughs> I just made a note about that sequence and just wrote tradition <laughs> next mm. to it because you have to. I mean, um, I guess I would. Do it if I had, like, if people would be disappointed in me if I didn't do it, I'd probably just do it. <laughs> I wanted to make sure we talked about this moment from a goofy perspective, because there's also a really touching moment, like, right afterwards, where I guess the prince is chowing down on his fresh liver. Of course. And people are cleaning up the stag. And Are we talking, like, a mouthful or, like, multiple bites? It seems like maybe, like, a bite. Okay, a bite would be okay. Multiple bites would be tough. Okay. But anyway, go on with your Anyway. Um, and Kaisa kind of walks away from the crowd, and Ash notices that she is upset 
or or just like the mood has shifted and it's it becomes clear that Kaisa has kind of a like a reverence for the life of the animal that she killed and is just kind of overwhelmed by the moment and the life that she took and uh, from this creature and stuff like that. But I just wanted to highlight the line that Lowe gives Ash in this moment to walk up to the woman who is not really like her romantic partner explicitly yet, but she did ask a fairy for magic clothes so that she could go uh. be part of this hunt. Mm-hmm. They don't, and they, they're still like learning about each other. She just asks, noticing that she's upset. She just goes, is everything as it should be? What a good question. I just was like, what a good early relationship question. If you notice your partner is like upset about something, but you don't really know the backstory and you don't really know like what you should be saying or not. Just like, is this what's supposed to happen? (laughs) Is a really good question. Yeah. Like, is this how you normally react to this situation or is something going on? Yeah. Should, Should I, should I respond as if this is a novel event or should I just respond as this is an opportunity to like learn about how you process this? It was just a good, Oh, so good. It was a good moment. Um, the, the, yeah, the, the, the book doesn't have too many too many opportunities to like ground itself outside of the fairy tale stuff um and those moments like that do crop up though i was kind of happy to encounter them um so she has two more balls to go to she gets invited by kaisa to another uh like the what you would think of as the ball from the disney cinderella which is a masked party all the eligible women in the kingdom are going to show up and go maybe meet the prince and kaisa's like hey could you come like clearly we'd like each other <laughs> like maybe you could come to the party that i have to be at because like all the royals mm-hmm. like me that would mm-hmm. be cool um so she has to go back to the fair to sheen fairy sheen father and be like could i go to another party and he's like yes but you can only be there till midnight because you're further away from the woods. So my magic is weaker. Uh, and yes, you do have to still be mine later. Please don't forget. And she's like, that's fine. Um, I didn't mention that there isn't, okay, what doesn't happen in this version of Cinderella? There isn't like, boom, I turned a pumpkin into a thing or boom, mm-hmm. I cast a spell on your clothes and now they're magic clothes. Nobody turns any pumpkins in any, anything nothing is pumpkin no nothing is pumpkin any questions um (laughs) instead she it's like uh it's like one day shipping like the next day she gets a magic bag that has really beautiful clothes in it each time that she requests a new costume change from the Mm -hmm. from the fairies um and she goes to this party she does dance with the prince he is wowed by her but then the the only more the only way that that becomes relevant later is is people are like, man, and then you left and every and he was still talking about you, but that's like all that happens. There's no like hunt so she for ruined a, slipper. a bunch of other people's nights. Yes, but he doesn't follow up on. It. No, 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 no. Okay, she does have a really climactic, sad, romantic scene with Kaisa where she's like, uh, I owe uh like redacted like too much. Like she doesn't t- say what the fairy bargain is. But she is realizing that she is like really deep in this relationship now and is not going to be able to make good on it because she owes mm-hmm. this fairy her life. Um, and then there's one more Yule Ball towards the end where he where she like crashes it even though she shouldn't be there and dances with Kaisa and they have a really lovely interaction and she learns that she's in love and that helps her get out of the fairy agreement. I won't explicitly dive into that because it turns on like a dime with some real fairy tale logic that is like moving in the moment but you when you're out of the book you're like that only works because this is supposed to be a fairy tale yeah right like you kind of get into like a rumpelstiltskin kind of like fine print sort of situation it's some like the power of love but fine print stuff Hmm, (laughs) okay it's it's it works and the book ends with a like happy ever after the two of them like together, but no, no clear picture of like what's going to happen to them next. 
nothing and i think she's even said in interviews when people have been like is there gonna be a sequel i like these characters could you write more about them please and she's like no it's a fairy tale the point is that they got their happily ever after and then we're never supposed to know what could happen after that (laughs) yeah like i don't i don't need to read cinderella 2 where like cinderella and the (laughs) prince have three kids and they're hitting a rough patch but then they rediscover their love for each other after like a brief dalliance now you don't need to read that andrew but do you need to write it that's a good question could I be the one who writes Cinderella too? Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Huh. Could it is it an audiobook with song, perhaps? I mean, it could be a transmedia experience. <laughs> it could be a multiple things. Yes, I dig it. Um the other reason I think it works to end it right at the moment that their relationship is like fairy tale final is it's a relationship. The reason it's so moving for Ash is that it is a relationship in which neither of them owe each other anything. Every other relationship of the book is predicated on some sort of debt, literal or emotional. And for them to have a like mature relationship is to enter into the part of your life where you are like partnered with someone and you are negotiating like duty and obligation and doing things not because of those things for each other and that like I don't know. The book can't the book can't and won't go there for for it to work and I think that's yeah. okay for me. I am just like now I'm over here thinking about um like every fairy tale, I mean particularly Cinderella, but pretty much any of them that does this. Any fairy tale that like ends with two young lovers in like a carriage riding off to enjoy their happily ever after and like the rest of their life together. I want you to imagine if the camera kept rolling for like two more minutes i think every single one of those just becomes that last scene in the graduate yeah i was just, just gonna like, say <laughs> like what do they talk about yeah what's like what? boy boy i only <laughs> we're only together because i saw you once and i thought you were pretty in the sh- shoe the shoe fit and I've like I've spent many many days and weeks like building you up in my mind, but I really know nothing about you as a person because we haven't really spoken. So like, boy, I hope we have something in common. What yeah. kind of TV do you like? Oh, that's good. Like, that's like, good. Yeah. I I think to to seriously answer your goofy point, this book does a pretty good job of giving you multiple scenes where Ash and Kaisa are like together, they're talking, they're sharing stories about themselves and like fairy tales that they like. And there is clearly like, there is clearly stuff for them to talk about. But what you don't know on the other side of this novel is like the world, the lens in which you can see this world, like just beyond it, I don't know what it is for a huntress to have a partner. I don't know what roles for women exist in this world. Like there's like there's the, you know, kind of healer green witch women in the in the village and then there's some intimation that like there's like apprentices and like women can work in some industries but it's not really sketched out. So like there is a lot of there are gender politics in this world. Um but it's around like the traditional marriage roles and stuff like that, like heterosexual marriage roles. But it's like the book is clearly not going to give you that. And so it does leave some open questions as to like, what would their life look like together in ways that I think is is, like interesting. Yeah. Like that you have those questions and not like what happens to these two specific characters is is interesting because that does seem to be what Melinda Lowe is also interested in because she did, that she did the Huntress, she did yeah. that other book in this universe with none of the same characters in it. And I do wonder if part of that book would not be like fleshing out more about like the Huntress's role yeah. and how like all kinds of different things work in this in this society now that you've sort of got this Cinderella tale as as your entry point. 
Um, there is, I did, I pulled a quote from a tour interview that she did where she said, to be honest, I wrote Ash without thinking about what genre it was. I assumed I was writing an adult novel since I was and still am an adult. But when it came time <laughs> to submit the manuscript to agents, I realized it fit into YA. Then since Ash was sold in a two book deal to a YA publisher, I had to write a YA fantasy on purpose the second time around. <laughs> Which just rules. That's great. I love it. Um, yeah, I mean, whomst among us has not done <laughs> a thing by accident and then has had to recreate it on purpose? Yep. Uh-huh. Like, that can be rough. It's real good. Um, and just to close the loop on it as a lesbian romance or lesbian retelling of a romantic story that completely avoids coming out narrative stuff and just presumes that this works in the world, like... There, there is a lot, there are characters who are like, well, when you grow up, what kind of man do you want to marry? And Ash doesn't really have an answer to it because at that point she doesn't even have a real sense of what it is to be a person who loves at all in that way. Um, but then when she has become interested in Kaisa and is at this party where she does see someone else, another woman talking to her and experiences some jealousy, like someone else is like, huh, you're, hmm interesting you are are you interested in this person and it's not there's no judgment to it other than like wow you have a jealous look on your face right now (laughs) (laughs) um there's way the the transgressions that happen in this book are transgressions of like class and economic status the types of love in this book do not have those same boundaries attached um which is just what she set out to do in terms of creating her world Sure. Um, and it's it's interesting. Um, yeah, I think that's all I I got here. There's like a little thing where well, you mentioned very early are the stepsisters uniformly evil and bad. The one Anna is the one who's trying to get married and like she doesn't really have a redemption arc at all. The younger one, Clara, there's like two or three scenes where Ash is like talking to her and it's clear that she's not as bad. And then at like the end of the book. Ash is like, what if you went and got a job? And Clara's like, a job? And that's kind of the end of that. Huh. Yeah, like, cause cause that's your one that's your one part point, like entry point in the family where what like one of them could say, it's weird that our stepsister is an indentured servitude to us. Yeah. We were not consulted on this. We did not help make this decision. It's just a thing that's happened and whether they are gloating or like, is this legal? Yeah. <laughs> is yeah, that that is a that's a thread to pull at. And there's no there's no thing. direct competition with her the way that it happens in the other tellings where it's like, well, clearly she shouldn't come to the ball. There's no revelation in the same way that she is competing, though they do find out that she went to the ball and are mad about it. Um but yeah, there's a little bit of differentiation between the two, even though I think that is if to your very first question, like that's something that's a little underbaked. Uh, sure. But I I think it's underbaked for a reason. I think there's more important stuff in the book. Yeah, I mean it's it maybe underbaked because she doesn't care about it that much. Like <laughs> you know? what like what if you were just focused on on these characters in this relationship between uh Kaisa and Ash, like why I don't know if you're not planning on following it up. Like yeah. why, why stretch out other characters and like dig into them if they don't actually matter that much narratively for real, for real. Yeah. And, and, and you could, you could go either way on that, like, and still do a standalone book that has no sequel, but choosing not to do it is perfectly valid. Yeah. Um, well, Andrew, I hope that you have learned a lot in your research for Cinderella too. Um, I mean, I've got ideas. <laughs> Hit Andrew up with your two book deals. <laughs> Send us an email at overduepod.gmail.com or hit us up on social media, twitter.com and facebook.com slash overduepod to tell us what you think about this book if you've read it or what you think Andrew should put in his telling of Cinderella. Um, <laughs> thanks to Stephen, Jen, Emil, Erica, Marcy, Trina, Chris, Zach, Mike, Robert, Melanie, Tom, Colleen, Stephanie, and many more. 
for reaching out to us this week. Thanks to Nick Larangis, who composed our theme song. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there we have links to the social feeds that Craig mentioned, also our Apple Podcasts and Google pages. We are also on Spotify and Stitcher and anywhere else you get podcasts. Uh, we have a Patreon project, patreon.com slash overdue pod. If you donate there, you can suggest books that we will read. Uh, you can get bonus episodes early, including uh, our current long read project, uh, Jagged Little Mill, which is about the Edith Grossman translation of Miguel de Cervantes' Don Quixote. Uh, the first combined episode of that just went up on the feed late last week. So go ahead and listen to that if you want to and you haven't yet. We have fun with that one. It's pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good time. Um, And we will be figuring out our April schedule uh, directly and we will let you know what is next. Keep an eye on social for that information. Yeah. All right, everybody. Uh, Thank you for allowing us to get stuck in your ears like a big, giant, stupid boat. And until we talk to you next week, please try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.